This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Endometriosis affects one in 10 women during the reproductive ages and can result in chronic abdominal symptoms, pelvic pain, and at times can result in infertility. It can produce a variety of vague symptoms, which commonly results in a delay from onset of symptoms to diagnosis. As primary care providers, we need to be alert to symptoms which could represent endometriosis and establish a diagnosis. While there is no cure, we can then begin to manage this chronic condition by controlling symptoms. So the topic for today's podcast is endometriosis, and our guest is Dr. Tatney Burnett from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Tatney, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start by asking you to just give a good basic description of what is endometriosis. Sure. Um, so endometriosis is a condition. Some might even think of it as a syndrome because we're not 100% sure it is one disease. But regardless, it's a condition where we find tissue where it's not supposed to be. And let me explain that a little further. So if you think of your normal female anatomy, where you have a uterus, the uterus components includes the muscle on the outside, and then the endometrial lining on the inside. That's a simplistic view, but just bear with me on that. The endometrial lining is what responds to hormones that come from the ovary, and that hormone production is triggered from the brain. Endometrial tissue is comprised of a couple of different types of cells, and uh, those cells kind of respond in different ways to that hormone from the ovary. Endometriosis is defined as having that endometrial type tissue outside of the uterus where it's not supposed to be. Typically on pathology, that's defined as having the glands and the stroma of the endometriosis, endometrial type tissue in that location. There are definitely, you know, some uh, minutiae in, in other ways that that can be defined, but that's kind of the general accepted uh, definition. And really it can take three general forms. Those include cystic forms or endometriomas, usually found in the ovaries, superficial endometriosis or lesions that kind of sit on top of things, usually in the pelvis, but can be elsewhere. They can sit on the lining of the pelvis or on the bladder or on the surface of the uterus or ovaries. And then deep endometriosis, which is defined as having a depth of more than about half a centimeter. And that type of endometriosis can invade structures like invade the bowel or the bladder or the ureter or other structures. So the bottom line is endometriosis is when we find tissue that's like the tissue of the endometrium outside of the uterus. It can form a few different manifestations and it's not a homogenous condition. It really has many different forms to it um, and presents in different ways. So what are the most common sites for this implanted endometrial tissue? And then what are some of the more uncommon sites? 
Sure. So most commonly, we would have the superficial type of endometriosis and sitting on the peritoneal lining of the pelvis. So posterior cul-de-sac behind the uterus and in front of the rectum, pelvic sidewalls and uterosacral ligaments also below the ovaries and behind the uterus and uh, then other places throughout the pelvis. Those would be the most common. Um, and superficial endometriosis is by and large the most common type of endometriosis as well, or common manifestation. Uncommon sites, uh, you know, really if you look at case reports for endometriosis, it's been found in almost every single body tissue and organ. It's actually been found in males who are on certain types of prostate cancer therapy, and we think the hormones can induce formation of that. So there are really few places it has not been described. So I imagine the presenting symptoms depend on where this endometrial tissue is, but what are the typical presenting symptoms of endometriosis? Yeah, so I'd put those symptoms into three general categories, Daryl, and that would be pain-related symptoms and a variety of, of uh, subcategories in there, such as pain with your menstrual periods, pain starting before your menstrual periods, chronic pelvic pain, painful intercourse or dyspareunia, and variety of other additional pain complaints. And then we have infertility-related symptoms, so women who have difficulty attempting pregnancy. And then finally, the last category, which is an important one to note, is no symptoms or minimal symptoms that really aren't recognized by the patient for whatever reason. That one's important because, you know, we, we do have some manifestations of endometriosis that can cause harm and sometimes show up without symptoms. And the one that comes to mind is, is silent kidney death. Occasionally we'll see a patient who has blockage of a ureter, doesn't really have much in the way of pain symptoms and a dead kidney. So the asymptomatic or non-painful patient um, is one to keep in mind. Okay. What age do these symptoms typically present? Is this uh, very young in a woman's life or is it older, middle age? There's a wide variety of presenting time. Um, if you look at you know, much of the published literature, typically you're going to see uh, ages in, in the 30s as very common. But honestly, when we look at patients presenting with symptoms, and, and we'll probably get to this a little later, there is a long delay between when a patient starts having symptoms and when they're diagnosed. And part of that is likely related to a number of factors, including, first of all, uh, you know, people often minimize symptoms. So women are commonly told periods are painful. You know, that's a painful period. You know, suck it up. We're all women. We, you know, deal with it. And that symptom may have been present for a long time, but the patient may be minimizing it because of what they've been told. And so while the data would suggest in the 30s is common to present, really we see uh, patients presenting with symptoms in their 20s and their teens, and occasionally uh, sometimes uh, pre-adolescence, although that is rare. And then we do see a, a group of patients who also present in their 40s. We see a, a larger amount of severe disease in the 40s in my practice. But again, some of that is, is also due to women minimizing symptoms up until they feel that they're done with childbearing and they think it's time for treatment at that point. Are there theories regarding what actually causes this? Uh, is this new endometrial tissue that develops in these locations? Or is it endometrial tissue from the uterus that gets displaced in these other areas? What are the theories regarding what's going on behind this? Yeah, that's a great question, Daryl. And the answer is a little complicated. In general, I, uh, I'll list out for you the you know, six to eight theories that we really use to try to describe or understand why we see endometriosis. 
And as we talk about those, I'll give you the context. Really, endometriosis, when we compare the endometriosis lesions to what we would call utopic or endometrial tissue from the uterus, when we look at the molecular signal of those two types in the same patient, they are slightly different. So endometriosis isn't the exact same endometrial type tissue that is in the uterus. If it comes from the uterus, it undergoes some changes when it goes to where it is, or it's developed differently outside. We don't know for sure which of those is true. So let's, let's run down the theories, Daryl. The first and probably you know, most common theory that you'll hear is known as Samson's theory, also known as the retrograde menstruation theory. And that theory is based on the fact that we know that women who, who have menstrual periods, about 90% of them have blood not only going forward through the cervix and out of the vagina, but also backward through the fallopian tubes into the abdomen and pelvis. So it's very common for that to happen in women. And the, the theory postulates that as that menstrual flow goes backwards through the fallopian tubes, it deposits some endometrial cells into the pelvis, into the dependent portion of the pelvis, and seeks to explain why we most commonly see endometriosis kind of behind the uterus, underneath the ovaries, where that menstrual fluid is typically uh, deposited. Now, the reason why this theory doesn't explain everything and seeks for additional theories to help explain what we see is because if 90% of women have retrograde menstruation, Daryl, why do only about 10% of women have endometriosis? There's a gap there in explaining what we see. And the other theories kind of try to fill in those gaps. Also, retrograde menstruation can't explain endometriosis outside of the pelvis or in the thoracic cavity or you know, in the leg or other places we might see it. So it's, it's not sufficient really to explain all the manifestations of disease. Mm -hmm. So we have other theories such as the immunologic theory that endometriosis is immune mediated, maybe having some relationship to immune type conditions where the body's immune cells are acting abnormally with maybe cells from retrograde menstruation or other types of cells. We have the metaplasia theory where maybe the cells aren't coming from the uterus, but maybe there are cells located outside of the uterus, such as fibroblasts, which we see in the peritoneum, and those cells are transforming into endometrial type tissue where they're located. So it's not a translocation of endometrial type tissue. It's a transformation of cells where they are. We have the uh, hormone induction theory. Okay, why would you know, cells somewhere else change into endometriosis? Well, maybe because they're under the influence of the hormones of the individual. Support for that would be you know, similar to what I mentioned before about women, uh, men on prostate cancer therapy who we see those hormones induce changes like endometriosis in, in some of their tissues. We have the congenital theory that maybe people with endometriosis are born with the endometriosis they have. The, that endometrial tissue is there from the time of their birth and just develops and becomes more evident later on in life. I'm probably missing one or two, but that really covers the breadth of explanation. And the reason we have so many theories, Daryl, is really because we don't fully understand exactly why it occurs and the manifestations of the disease are varied. And so to explain what we see, we kind of uh, develop theories to explain the different manifestations of the mm -hmm. disease. Well, Tatney, I imagine that the uh, symptoms most commonly are cyclic pelvic pain. What other symptoms commonly uh, present with endometriosis? I 
think this is a really important question, particularly for providers who might see a patient with endometriosis. Yes, in general, most women, particularly when they have onset of symptoms, start out with cyclic pain. So pain around the time of their menses, pain that slowly becomes more and more days before the start of their menses. That would be kind of the classic, most common type pain symptom that we see. However, okay, and this is the important part, there are a number of things that can change that. So number one, once a patient has pain for long enough related to endometriosis, it often generalizes. That may be because it's pulling in other pain conditions like pelvic floor pain or, or pain from other body systems. And so commonly when I see a patient, they already are at the stage where they have pain every day. And maybe that pain is a little worse when they're on their menstrual period, but it's now a daily pain. The other thing that can change it really is, is any hormonal manipulation. So once we have a patient who's on birth control or an IUD, they may present with pain that is not cyclic at all. And that is still well within the realm of what endometriosis can do. So yes, cyclic pain is the most common, but we have to be on the lookout for patients who present outside of that because while they're not as common, they are common enough that we see it with fair regularity. Well, since this is primarily hormonal driven, do symptoms typically resolve once a woman reaches menopause? Yes. For the majority of patients with a few exceptions, which I'll describe, symptoms largely improve with menopause. That's one of the keys to our management of endometriosis, particularly either whether we do surgery on a patient and then are suppressing them after surgery with hormones to prevent recurrence of disease or endometriomas, or we have a patient who are not doing surgery, but we're managing medically. The goal of that management is to bridge to menopause when the body's own hormones will typically turn off and stop stimulating the disease process. Now, the caveats to that are two caveats. Number one, patients who are on hormone replacement therapy. And the most common category of women I see who are postmenopausal and have symptoms are women who have either a history of endometriosis, but they had surgery and removed their uterus. Maybe their ovaries, maybe not. But someone said, okay, let's put you on some hormone replacement therapy. And they're on estrogen-only hormone replacement therapy. That is, by and large, the largest category of women I see postmenopausally who have symptoms. The other category is a rare kind of minority, but, but worth noting. And that is patients who have malignant transformation of their endometriosis. It's a known factor that some endometriosis has the ability to transform into cancer or malignancy. It's uncommon. It's not something, you know, for patients to be in general scared or worried about. That patient population is a patient that we occasionally see with new symptoms, not on hormones, who present postmenopausally and will see a cancer develop either in an endometrioma that sometimes wasn't known about, or in deep endometriosis or a nodule that wasn't known about that's now uh, discovered because of new postmenopausal symptoms. Okay. The other major hormonal issue that occurs in women is uh, pregnancy. So what happens during pregnancy? For the vast majority of patients who become pregnant, most endometriosis-related symptoms improve significantly. And the reason for that is you know, the two ways that endometriosis becomes quiet is either when we take away all hormones from the body and the endometriosis is no longer stimulated, 
or when we suppress it by giving it more progesterone or progestin-based hormones. And that's what most of our medical theory is based on, um, one of those two states, either increasing progesterone to, to suppress it or taking away hormones and not feed it. Pregnancy is a very high hormone state. Both estrogen and progesterone are high in pregnancy, but the amount of progesterone is just so high that it really suppresses endometriosis uh, quite well. So vast majority of women in, in pregnancy do have significant improvement in symptoms. Well, I know infertility is probably the one of the most serious complications of endometriosis. How often does that occur? Yeah, Daryl, uh, infertility is seen in about 40% of women with endometriosis. So the good news is there is that the majority of women with endometriosis don't struggle with infertility, but 40% is still a fairly large proportion. Yeah, that's still quite high. Is the mechanism for infertility known? A few different postulated uh, theories. You know, the, the one that's well understood would be tubal factor infertility. So as you know, for a pregnancy to occur, you have to have egg meet sperm. Egg comes from the ovary and travels down the tube. Sperm typically meets the egg in the fallopian tubes, and then the fertilized egg transfers into the uterus. Endometriosis can cause damage to the fallopian tubes, either due to scarring of the tips of the fallopian tubes, preventing passage, or damage to the inside of the fallopian tubes, affecting the mechanisms by which fluid can flow and the cilia or hair cells in the fallopian tube move things. So damage to the fallopian tube is, is probably the, the most well understood part of infertility related to endometriosis. And uh, there's something called the endometriosis fertility index. It's a staging system. There are multiple staging systems for endometriosis, but the endometriosis fertility index is based mainly on and highly graded towards uh, tubal damage. And it correlates the best of any staging system we have with infertility in patients with endometriosis. So yeah, tubal damage would be one of the primary factors, but it's not the only one. We also know that endometriosis itself, it's not a bystander disease just causing pain where it is. It also has the ability to release inflammatory mediators, things that we call cytokines. And those inflammatory mediators may actually impact the quality or viability of eggs produced in patients with endometriosis and may impact the ability of that egg to be fertilized or to implant appropriately. So endometriosis itself may have a toxic effect on the ability of the body to become pregnant. And then finally, special mention is probably worth noting for endometriomas or those cysts of endometriosis in the ovaries. They definitely are significantly associated with infertility. They cause both impact on the quality of eggs that a woman might produce than the ability of those eggs to, to be fertile. They also affect the quantity of eggs. So the longer that an endometrioma is in an ovary, the more it kind of slowly chews through the ovary in its inflammatory nature, decreasing the good ovarian tissue and the number of eggs that can be used to then go on and get a pregnancy and, and achieve a pregnancy. So endometriomas are, are, are definitely a big impact on fertility as well and, and a barrier to women in achieving pregnancy. Well, Tatney, I imagine that you see the more complex or challenging cases of endometriosis. And I imagine that many women with symptoms present to their primary care provider. So once we suspect it, what's the next step? How is a diagnosis made? So there has been change in the field of endometriosis over time on this particular question. And if you look at the textbooks, Daryl, usually you'll see that 
you know, laparoscopy is the gold standard for diagnosing endometriosis. And there's still some truth to that. When we do surgery and we obtain tissue and send that tissue to the pathologist, the pathologist tells us it's endometriosis. That's a definitive diagnosis. Yes. But we no longer rely on that to start treatment and to start caring for patients who have the condition. In particular, you know, our, our imaging has evolved over the last 15 to 20 years to the point where we really can see a number of the manifestations of endometriosis, particularly the um, endometriomas and the deep endometriosis. We can see that very well before doing surgery. We have specialized protocols with either specialized transvaginal ultrasounds or MRIs that allow us to identify that type of disease, allow us to see the scarring that may occur, bring the ovaries together behind the uterus. And with fairly high certainty in women who have those manifestations, we can make the diagnosis, start a treatment plan, whether that's a medical, non-surgical treatment or surgical treatment to, to treat the disease. In general, you know, any woman presenting with these types of pain symptoms or infertility related symptoms, you know, most people, we would recommend uh, obtaining a pelvic ultrasound as a start. Just a, a routine pelvic ultrasound will identify endometriomas with high accuracy. And so that's typically the place that most of our patients start. However, once we have that information, or if we don't find anything, we don't stop there and say, okay, ultrasound's negative, can't be endometriosis. And we either will appropriately treat the patient's symptoms because we know there are other types of endometriosis that it won't see, or we move forward with additional testing or referrals. And in the case of patients with symptoms that might indicate the presence of other disease, then we start thinking about using our endometriosis protocol MRI or specialized ultrasound that some centers have move towards treating symptoms and achieving the patient's goals with their disease. So endometriosis is suspected. It's been diagnosed. What's next? What are the treatment options? So really treatment is uh, directed based on the patient's presenting complaints and their goals. If a patient's presenting with infertility, then our treatment is going to focus down the path of achieving pregnancy. And sometimes that might be surgery to remove all of the endometriosis, decrease the impact that that has on the ability of, of the egg and fertility structures to, to function appropriately. Sometimes that might be uh, assisted reproductive technologies to help achieve pregnancy, such as IVF or otherwise. So that would be the kind of infertility piece. On the pain end of the spectrum, Treatment is similar, although we now can use some hormonal suppression as a tool, which we can't use in patients who are achieving, attempting to achieve fertility because by and large, our hormonal methods will block pregnancy. So really, when I sit down and talk to a patient who is dealing with pain and fertility isn't their primary focus at the moment, the question is, what types of pain symptoms are they experiencing? What treatment options are really going to help to address those? Not forgetting that endometriosis always brings friends when it comes to pain to make sure we're treating things like pelvic floor tension myalgia that endometriosis often causes, looking for other pain generators such as irritable bowel syndrome or painful bladder syndrome, really doing a holistic approach, understanding what pain generators we have, deciding between hormonal suppression and surgery. There are, there are multiple uh, pros and cons of each and understanding how much time we have between where the patient is and menopause when they might have some uh, more definitive long-term relief. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine with some women who have been diagnosed early in life with endometriosis and pregnancy in the future is anticipated, does managing pain with like analgesics 
and not really getting at the mechanism of what's happening, does that predispose them to infertility in the future? So this is a delicate question. And the reason is we do have some data to guide us, but not as much as I would like. The first part of your question really is using things that do not modify disease. It does that have a negative impact on the patient in the long term? And the answer is, you know, in general, if I use ibuprofen, acetaminophen, other things like that to treat my periods, I'm not affecting the process that's causing the discomfort or pain, whatever that process that's going on, endometriosis or otherwise is kind of still happening. The deeper part of that question, though, is if I place someone on a birth control pill, or if I place the levonorgestrel IUD, or if I take someone to surgery at age 20, okay, do I improve their fertility prospects at age 30? And the answer to that question is unfortunately not very well known. Now, we don't know for sure how much hormones like birth control pills or the IUD change disease outcomes over the long term. We know that they treat symptoms very well in some patients, but we actually don't have good quality data saying, if I put an IUD in someone at age 20 and keep changing it, will they still have preserved fertility compared to if I did not 10 years later? Most of us would like to believe that doing as much as we can to suppress the disease might decrease the risk of future infertility. And that may be true. We just don't have high quality data to support it. So at the end of the day, usually we're guided more by the patient's symptoms in the moment than by what might happen in the future, understanding the caveat of, of, of what we don't understand. In general, as a result, my focus really is to decrease the patient's pain and treat their symptoms. And I can't push surgery as a way to know for sure that fertility will be better in the future, even though there is a, there's a chance that could be correct. But if we look at young women with endometriosis and pelvic pain, and we look at the number of surgeries they have, we see a high rate of multiple surgeries in women presenting with endometriosis. And there are probably lots of factors for that incomplete surgery, inadequately treated disease at the time of their first surgery, but also endometriosis is a relapsing remitting condition in, in many patients. Even when I treat it with full excision, we still have patients who have recurrence of symptoms and even recurrence of disease in short or mid or long-term fashion. So uh, it is my belief that we should do as much as we can to suppress symptoms, that we should use hormones appropriately that maybe that might improve future fertility prospects. There's a chance maybe surgery early for some patients at least improves their fertility later by decreasing the risk of inflammation and damage. But I can't say that with definitiveness with the literature I have. Mm -hmm. So those things I think are good to think about, are good to prioritize, uh, help prioritize for our patients. But the data really right now doesn't allow me to be more definitive on it. Okay, well, one last question. In women who develop infertility as a result of endometriosis, can fertility be restored? And if so, how successful is that? Yes and no. And, and the answer really goes back to the different ways that endometriosis may impact fertility. For instance, tubal infertility, where the tube is blocked or damaged. We used to try to do a tubal repairs, tubal reanastomoses, and by and large, we've discovered that, that those types of surgeries for patients with endometriosis don't really provide much benefit in achieving fertility. With tubal issues, really the ideal is always going to be 
in vitro fertilization, bypassing the tubes by taking eggs out and putting them together with sperm and putting them back in the uterus. So in a patient with isolated tubal disease with well-preserved ovarian function, uh, we do actually have a decent rate of, of, of achieving pregnancy. That changes a little bit when we are starting to talk more about uh, more extensive endometriosis that might be affecting uh, pregnancy through cytokines or worse yet with the endometriomas, which are now damaging the ovaries and their function. There does come a point for some patients where there is so much damage to the ovaries from an endometrioma that what we call their ovarian reserve or the number of eggs they have left just becomes an, an insurmountable problem to achieving a pregnancy with the patient's own eggs. And that's really one of the hardest positions to be in as a patient to trying to achieve a fertility is when the ovaries have been damaged enough by endometriosis through endometriomas that the number of eggs left is really not enough to help us assist them in getting pregnancy with their own eggs. For those patients, we still do have the ability to use things like donor egg but for some patients, that's not really you know, meeting the goals of what they're trying to achieve. For other patients, that's certainly an option to do. There is expense often associated with multiple of these. So for some of our patients who don't have good insurance coverage for these assisted reproductive technologies, it can be a significant challenge. Um, so the bottom line is it really depends on how the endometriosis is affecting the fertility, what tools people are able to use to overcome that, and how much uh, ovarian function someone has left or damage to the ovaries that may be affecting the number of eggs they have left. We have good methods for some, and then it's more difficult for others. Well, Tatney, despite the fact that endometriosis is a condition we've known about for a long time, it sounds like there's still a lot to be learned about this condition. Unfortunately, yes. One of the things that we do at Mayo Clinic is a number of research projects to try to help advance uh, knowledge in the field further. Uh, myself and my colleagues are involved in, in different aspects of research on that. I'm very happy to have the colleagues I have that to collaborate with. We have basic scientists as well that we collaborate with. But yes, there's lots of work to be done. There is uh, a need for more research. There's a need for more funding for research, for women's health research. All of those things need to come together to advance the field further. Well, we've been discussing the evaluation and management of endometriosis with Dr. Tatney Burnett from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Tatney, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's been my total pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invitation, and, and hopefully our, uh, your listeners are able to glean something from this to apply to their patients. I'm sure they will. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.